you know, it's uh, the content has about as much importance as the stenciling on the casing of an atomic bomb, right? Uh, right. That that idea uh, from the Playboy interview. Um, I recently gave a, the, there's something called the Media Ecology Association. I don't know if you've come across them yet. Not yet, no. Okay. Um, it's an interesting organization, uh, mainly academic based, but they include some fringy types. Um, and they have a, a conference every year. This year it was in Toronto, so I went. Um, and I, I gave a presentation called Why Study Media? Mm. And I answered the question with, because the medium is the message. Uh, and in the 15 minutes between the question and the answer, um, I went, uh, I kind of turned the, the presentation on the audience. And um, one of, uh, we mentioned figuring ground. So um, one of the classes that I do, I teach it as a workshop in figuring ground. And it's especially fun with the younger kids, uh, you know, kids. And so what I do is I determine, um, sorry, I, I define the terms figure and ground. And, you know, Marshall borrowed those terms from um, a thing called Gestalt psychology mm -hmm. uh, back in 1915, uh, a guy by the name of uh, Edgar, someone or rather, <laughs> anyway. Uh, yeah, it, yeah. Uh, Edgar Rubin was his name. Okay doesn't really matter, but um, they've been using the, the terms to, to describe the structure of visible, visible phenomena. And Marshall used them to describe the structure of human perception. Um, and so we define the figure as the object of the intent of attention or technology. And so what I do is I say, okay, so let's take the smartphone because you know everybody has one in their pockets. Uh, and especially with kids, even they all have one in their pockets, so it's easy to relate to. I say now the ground is, um, you know, everything you need in order for this technology to work. And it's everything that happens as a result of it. So um, the way it reorganizes your recess and how you talk with your friends and the way you communicate and all these things. And so I, I go to the whiteboard or blackboard behind me and I write smartphone in the middle and then I turn around the students and I say, well, who can give me something that you need for the technology to work? Um, like electricity or power lines or networks or, you know, materials and schools and tech, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, they get into it and we go around the room several times and we get the board full of things. And, uh, you know, they have a really good time with it, which is great. Um, and I say, okay, when the board is all full. The other neat thing is that when you start mapping them out on the board, um, you know, and I take a hand in it, you start noticing how things relate to each other and you get certain categories. And um, by the time the board is really full, I, I say, okay, now imagine tomorrow morning you wake up and your smartphone doesn't work and it's never going to work again. And this is great with the kids because they're like, oh! <laughs> you know, there's an audible gasp in yeah. the room uh, because they just can't imagine, and that's the point, right, is that they can't imagine how they would do anything without a smartphone, right? It just, it's such a part of their lives. So I erased all from that, all everything I've written on the board, and I leave the smartphone in the middle. And we talk about what it would mean, how, how that would change their day, their week, their month, their year, 
if they could no longer rely on a smartphone. And I say, and that's how you tell the effect. You know, that's how you really tell how enmeshed any technology is in society, what it's done to you, what it's done to your relationships, to your work, to your education structure, to all these things. Um, and taking the, the figure away from the ground really helps to bring the ground to the forefront. The thing is, we've only had smartphones for a dozen years, right? We've had the internet for 25, you know, 30 years, whatever. Um, and we did everything we do now, basically, um, just fine. You know, we can get along without these things. But to go back is a whole other matter. Mm. Um, anyway, so uh, I was I did this figure ground workshop in like, you know, 10 minutes, which I usually take an hour to do it with the, with the students or whatever. Um, and at the end, I said, and that you know, that ground, that is the medium. And that is why the medium is the message uh, because it's those effects that matter more than, you know, the talk we're having now, more than the stenciling on the case of the atomic bomb. It's the effect the atomic bomb has. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why the medium is the message. And that is why we need to study media because um, it's going to happen whether or not we pay any attention. And there's a chance you know, a slight chance maybe, but a chance that we can actually do something about it. Um, and that was uh, Marshall's point also in the in the Playboy interview was that, you know, um, he's just sick of uh, sitting by and letting the juggernaut roll over me, as he says. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, later in the, in the 70s, he got a little more radical and suggested... Uh, you know, we could regulate technologies kind of the way we have thermostatic controls, uh, but for the planet. So he was advocating things like, oh, is there a little too much civil unrest in Africa? Oh, well, let's turn down radio for a while. And, you know, uh, yeah, these are things. <laughs> a little out there. But, you know, this, this goes to his method, which was, you know, experimentation and exploration and trying things and, you know, they'd say things like, hey, you don't like that idea? I got others, you know, it's like, right. it comes back to utility and, you know, let's try this. And if it doesn't work, let's move on. But um, the only way we're gonna find out is if we give it a shot. Yeah, and this, the idea of, uh, of throttling various forms of, of technology or mm -hmm. media, obviously, we're we're living in a world right now where YouTube is directing um, so much more traffic than it was even just a few months ago away from alternative sources of media and towards mainstream sources of media to the point where the most milk toast uh, content creators and 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 uh, lefty pundits who are like social Democrats, not, they're not very radical at all. Like David Pakman is, has seen a, a decrease by millions of views every, every month. And he, and he shows this. And, and so it's like, it's, it's actually, it's, it, people are, you know, the, the, the frog in the pot of water where it's getting warmer and warmer until, until it's boi boiling all the time with technology. Yeah. And, you know, we, we experience it on the front end at the user experience end as, Oh, I've got more of these content creators who I didn't see before popping up on my feed. Uh, these are 
more, you know, they have millions of subscribers. I'm not used to that, you know, and, and, and maybe the ideas are a bit more, uh, capitalist realist, um, uh, not responding to Nazis, not critiquing, uh, Trump, um, you know, not, not that, not that those are the exact same thing though, you know, close enough for my comfort right now. Um, that, we experience it on the front end and get upset about it, perhaps think it's annoying, but then kind of just, we have to adapt. We adapt really fast to the changing conditions of technology. One of the things that uh, Marshall asks of us is to take that step back and look, say, what is the, you know, that, that, that might be the the figure, but what, what is, what, what, what is the ground that we assume? Yeah. Um, uh, and that, and that we've just become so used to at this point that we, we, we're not thinking about it from that distance. And as someone who, you know, critical theory is kind of my, my thing. And, you know, that, that comes from the tra from the tradition of people like Marx, uh, who say that, you know, we live in ideology all the time. It's how we make sense of the world. But be beneath that are the actual bases for how things function. Um, so oppression at the end of the day, it's not just because people believe that there is a king or that their boss has more authority. It's the, it's the fact that the, that that person was, um, for whatever reasons, granted that privilege, granted that rank, uh, and status, and not just that they're granted, uh, a, a, a higher place in a hierarchy, but who in that hierarchy gets access to certain opportunities or goods, services, et cetera. So, um, taking a step back from just being like, yeah, I'm dominated to being like, yeah, but what is the structure of domination and, and, and how does it function for real? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, it was, um, you know, another thing Marshall discarded and uh, people didn't know how to encounter it was um, his neutral stance. You know, he, yeah. he didn't, uh, in the Playboy interview, um, since this is kind of our, our topic, um, is another interesting place for that because the interviewer um, keeps trying to draw Marshall out and pin him down on his opinion. You know, well, what do you think about these things? You know, is it good or is it bad? And uh, Marshall's whole method is based on setting value judgment, a moralist point of view, any point of view aside and looking at what it does. Because once you say whether something's good for you or bad for you or of net benefit or net, you know, negative, mm -hmm. um, you kind of uh, give up a lot of uh, your ability to understand its effect and what it does yeah. and how it operates. Um, so that's why um, he worked the way he did. And he, he got called out all times, all the time about it. People said, oh, well, you know you hate books and you're talking about the death of books. And he's, you know, he said, you know, that's not the case at all. And, you know, I'm an English teacher. I have a large library. I write books, you know, I'm not against, I'm the last person to be against the book. But um, he would say, people assume that um, when you speak about something, you're in favor of it. Mm. And, you know, the exact opposite is almost always true in my case. Uh, anything I talk about is, is, almost certainly be something I'm resolutely against, but I want to understand it, you know? And he says, you know, I'm, I'm like um, the person uh, who pulls the fire alarm, you know? I didn't start the fire. I'm just telling you that the place is burning around and you might want to get out of here, right? Right. So, yeah. Well, like that's, that. I think that 
it's a common misperception of anyone who is critical of technology or media um, that they must be either a pessimist or think that th that it's bad. And and this in part just comes from how we think about the word critical, which yeah. I always like to remind everyone, it means distance, right? It means trying yeah. to gain a sense of distance to be able to understand what we are inside of. Right. Uh, and it might mean self-criticism in that sense, because uh, you're inside of yourself all the time. And so, you know, you forget that. And um, for someone to be critical of capitalism, for instance, for me, doesn't mean that I don't like um, the, the, you know, being able to get uh, a, a fast, hot meal, you know, or something yeah. like that. You know, it doesn't mean that I'm not a consumer. Uh, it, it, but but being critical means understanding how the thing works. And then if you if you want to understand how it works because you want to affect change in the most effective way possible, then that's another you know aspect of critical theory. But um, yeah, uh, Hannah, uh, no, actually she she is a bit more of a pessimist. Um, I would say Mar Marcuse. Uh, and McLuhan, uh, just as two people we've talked about this week, are, are great examples of people who they see a lot of benefits and a lot of potential. They just are also like, hey, you know, everyone, you're a frog in nearly boiling water. If we don't like start thinking there are goods and bads and we have to take take on some kind of responsibility for that, right? Or or some kind of action. Um, the, the idea, for instance, that throttling of of, of our life worlds. I think especially Americans are kind of taught to believe that, you know, let the free market handle it. Uh, people through their own, you know, rational self-interest will figure out what works best for them. Sure. Uh, but, but what's the, you know, and then the opposite of that view would be like, no, we need, you know, some, someone, some administrative power to be able to dictate what, what will work best and they can do that scientifically or, or whatever. Well, the, the neutral stance, simply says, look, there are different effects uh, on, on our on our consciousness and our, our modes of being yeah. uh, set by these different kinds of technologies. So could we talk for a second about hot and cold <laughs> media? Yeah. Because this is a good example. Because when he's talking about, th you know, we'll throttle it in this country and speed it up in this country, more TV over here, more radio over here, that kind of thing. Um, we live in a world now where it's just like, this, this is video. What we're doing right now is video. Um, but then my reception of the people in the group chat, it's the written word. And then uh, the people who listen to this later on podcasts, it's almost just the radio. So um, so we live in kind of a, a, a bigger mixture of these things now. So it's it actually makes it harder to see some of these real differences between these different forms of media. And hot and cold kind of helps us get kind of go in that direction. Yeah, well, um, hot and cool are relative terms, um, and Marshall used them that way uh, as a way to describe the nature of technologies, and especially in reference to one another. So um, a hot medium was any medium well-filled, a high definition, essentially. Um, and the whole thing gets a bit confusing, and it was one of the, one of the main uh, criticisms of uh, understanding media, um, which he addressed in the introduction to the second printing of understanding mm -hmm. media, um, which is great. Uh, and I encourage you to look it up. I did a, I wrote a little article on it for uh, my medium.com page, uh, where Michael Downs has a really great little page. Yes, he does. Uh, yeah, I've been, 
I've been so impressed to follow. Um, I'm not going to lie and say I read everything he does because that's not the case at all. But um, it's really cool to see uh, the traction that he's gotten uh, and the response. And so, well done, Michael. Uh, cool to see. No, yeah. seriously. Um, actually, like you know, so we've been, Mikey and I have been talking for a couple of years okay. now. Michael and I've been talking for a few years now about uh, theory and philosophy and um, I, I was, I don't know, I'm just, he, he's been thinking about like what, what outlet should I use for my writing and uh, for a long time and, and, and you know, should, to, to publish or to, 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 to write on a blog or, you know, and if you're, you know, Facebook with Michael, then you, you know that <laughs> he's still in that struggle because he's got lots of books in the process right now and the question is, you know, get this, get this information out to people directly through the blog and never get compensation for it. Or, you know, it's, it's, a, it's one of the kind of pickles that we're all in right now. Yeah. Uh, anyone, anyone who's trying to, uh, work outside of established institutions has to think about what, you know, we, we're the, you know, it, I'm the in, intelligentsia of the precariat, right? Uh, the precariat meaning that like, I'm a part of the workforce that is, living without health insurance that is, um, you know, living paycheck to paycheck, uh, who doesn't have any kind of, uh, their YouTube and Patreon could go away, you know, within the next month. And then I don't know what I'd be doing. So, well, you know, the thing is Michael, um, and you and I and philosophers in general are in yeah. the same position as, um, musicians. Um, whereas the musician used to rely on the album, uh, the philosopher relied on the book mm -hmm. and uh, neither can do either anymore. Right. So we're all struggling with uh, the collapse of various industries and how do you, um, how do you, you know, it's not even about uh, personally, it's not about monetiz monetization, right? Nobody's looking to get rich here, but right. uh, we have to support ourselves and if we believe in our work and we want to keep our work going, we have to support that. Um, right. So how do you do that? You know, um, and it's hard to let go of old notions. So, you know, the urge, you know, you think, oh, well, I have to write a book or I have to, you know, produce an album. But, um, you know, nobody's going to buy it enough to make it worthwhile. So uh, you look for other means. And I mean, for myself, um, I run the McLuhan Institute kind of virtually, and I noticed that um, the theory plebe page has about the same amount of people on it as the McLuhan Institute, you know, just over 800, between mm. eight and 900 people, which is really cool. Um, and I've been using different platforms to do different things and to experiment with them. So I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram, I'm on YouTube, and I'm on Twitter. Those are my main. Uh, I don't think I could manage <laughs> much more than that. You need to get Goodreads and Skillshare. Right? I heard you say Skillshare, and I'm like, oh, what's that? That sounds kind of interesting. No, I don't. You know, I definitely don't need another. Allow me to make a quick plug because I'm actually going to do a video about this soon. But I'm just honestly so excited about it. I've heard about it for years and years because, like Audible, if you listen to podcasts, you hear commercials for it. And so you always hear these Skillshare commercials and I finally looked into it and it's basically like if you have a skill, uh, whether it's reading a text such as this or, uh, you know, learning how to cook a vegan lasagna, whatever it is, you can put that together as a course on Skillshare and then it's kind of like Spotify for teachers. You'll get 
some kickback and maybe it's not a fair kickback. Maybe it's not enough to make a living kind of a kickback, but it's, it's a way. And they have like this 99 cents for a two year, for a two month trial. And so right now I'm on that and I'm learning after effects, illustrator, uh, fruity loops, you know, music production. I, cool. it's just, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, YouTube is already really good for DIY stuff, but because there's so much stuff that's put on there just for entertainment value, um, it's really, really easy to get distracted, uh, when you go down the rabbit holes. And so Skillshare, I'm getting distracted by other classes where I can like all of a sudden my ADD is getting unleashed into like five classes that I'm bouncing between. I literally right now have five classes up and I've, I've been doing them over the last week. So, but, and this is why, um, universities are dying if not dead. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it's, it's nothing new, actually. We've been going down this road for a long time and Marshall talked about it back in the seventies is that, um, you know, there's way more information accessible by anybody outside the universities than is inside the universities now. And that's been a fact um, for half a century at least, if not, if not longer. Um, and universities haven't met that challenge, uh, which is kind of interesting. They're just kind of doubling down. Yeah, uh, <laughs> kind of like. The thing is, they've got uh, a lot of overhead, you know? Um, and they're not, I don't think they're playing to their strengths, which um, maybe they'll figure it out. Maybe they won't. Um, if they don't, then there's going to be some cool real estate available coming up. But, uh, you know, um, it's, a, it's a great time to be a student and to enjoy learning because it's never been easier. And I don't think um, people today uh, really appreciate what that means and how different a situation that is from, um, you know, we're living a, a communist sort of wet dream, uh, the likes of which I don't know if Marx could have foreseen, you know, it's, um, anybody, 99 cent trial for two months to learn all these things you're talking about. 99 cents, Dave. <laughs> uh, you know, if that's not the communist ideal, I don't know what is. Um, so, <laughs> Well, it's getting, well, I mean, I don't, don't even, don't even start. <laughs> I haven't even read marks or anything. So okay, let's okay. go there. But um, what I mean, I think you understand what I mean to say. Now and, we have to save that one for May 5th because that's his birthday. But anyway. Okay. <laughs> On Cinco de Mayo. Yeah. Oh, that's handy. Um, in any case, it's a, uh, it's an exciting time to be, uh, to be a student. And I think to be a teacher, um, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun for me to talk to people and try and impart some of the stuff I've learned. Well, one of the things that I love so much about, um, McLuhan, Marcuse, Rand Heidegger, and these other theorists who really thought about, um, the changing conditions of our life world because of the mediation of, of new forms of technology is that they, um, allow us to, to, to see, uh, how things were, how things are new, and th this opens up new new possibilities. And so you, you talk about how McLuhan was talking about how this was possible in the 70s, which he definitely talks about it in the Playboy interview even. He talks about all of these different possibilities have been opened up. He also talks about the existential dilemmas that arise. Yeah. At the same time that he's talking about how the world, we could leave behind some of our tribal divisions and enter a sort of global village. So there's there's the good and the bad there, 
but the I would say, um, just just for my own time with these thinkers, is like I using them to see the current situation that we're in. It's like a clashing between those who want to hold on to the old infrastructure, mm -hmm. want to hold on to the old way of thinking about borders, nation states, uh, you know, patriotic identities. Um, us, us versus them. You know, these are the tribal divisions that he, uh, McLuhan was was hoping that we would be able to, you know, take responsibility for and address, and then maybe supersede in some ways. Yeah. And then the new the new media, uh, you know, brigade, the squad, you know, with with Twitter, who is in direct contact with the grassroots um, organizing that's going on in this country, and so. It's a real clash between people who want to uh, continue on with the old model, the the old democratic establishment, the old uh, university establishment, all of these old structures, the old music industry. The music industry still has all of this capital and all of this power uh, from that it built up in the 80s and 90s, uh, where they still get to kind of pick and choose winners. Yep. But at the same time, there is this. There are, are all of these subversive forces working against that well the crazy the crazy thing is is that you know those very systems are already dead you know for all intents and purposes um it's it's amazing that they that the power structures are able to hold on to power and they really only are because people haven't totally woken up to the fact that um we've already won all those battles you know um democracy as we practice it, uh, the idea of having to vote for representatives to send to Washington or to Ottawa <laughs> to represent our interests because we can't be there is a 19th century notion that has no basis in today. You know, it's unnecessary. Legit, we don't need them. Um, we could, uh, using relatively easily using technologies, uh, find a, a better way to do it. There's, we give up a lot of power that we don't have to anymore. Um, and I think people are, are starting to realize that and they get little hints of it here and there. Uh, and it's an intoxicating thing. Um, and it affects every, every sector, you know, publishing, music, politics. Uh, you know, it's, it's all kind of uh, fait accompli. It's all done, but um, we just haven't gotten the message so to speak, mm. you know, Marshall, uh, Marshall would from time to time, uh, be called a prophet or a futurist or something. And he said, uh, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a prophet, you know, I'm, I'm very careful to only predict things which have already happened. <laughs> so, and, uh, he said, you know, I'm not ahead of my time. I'm ahead of my contemporaries. Yes. Yes. And he wasn't, he wasn't, you know, being witty or snarky or whatever. He was, he was telling the truth. And uh, the thing is, he, he relied heavily, and this comes back to his literary criticism, he relied heavily on the arts. Um, and it's, it's no accident that he was such a fan of James Joyce uh, and, you know, other artists. Because he said, um, you know, he quoted Ezra Pound a lot, uh, who was a, a favorite poet of his, who said that the artist is the antennae of the race. Um, and for, for Marshall, the artist is so useful because um, the artist, you know, quote unquote, is a person who's always 
probing. They're always retuning their senses um, to see what's happening around them and to tell us about it. And they right. might even not necessarily, and in probably most cases, don't understand that that's what they're doing. But um, a lot of, of what Marshall predicted was just looking at what the arts were saying um, and saying, this is what's going on. And the fact that uh, these artists were 30, 50 years ahead of their time um, makes them look like a prophet today. Uh, but because we can see today what he was talking about, but the crazy thing to think about is that he was talking about his present in the sixties. Right. And we, we think that's our reality today, but in fact, and this is what blows my mind is what would Marshall have seen today um, mm -hmm. that's popping up that we're not seeing? Well, that, that freaks me out. <laughs> what would he have seen that we're not seeing when it's already become normal to talk about Trump in a McLuhanite way? Right. It's yeah. already, it's actually it's funny that, you know, he, when we, when people talk about uh, the Overton window of discourse, uh, which if you haven't seen the video for that, I'll link it in the description. Do do watch that. It's really important for thinking about any of this stuff. But yeah, when people talk about the Overton window, when people talk about uh, how uh, Twitter, just how it's structured, propelled Trump into the limelight, how the established CNN, MSNBC sort of uh, hegemony, how it's structured uh, in tandem with Twitter, just was, they were the perfect conditions for someone of that yeah. personality and that rhetorical style to yep. come bursting out in that moment. And that's a McLuhanite insight that, um, you know, I, well, I see McLuhan all over it. Yeah. There you have it. Um, you just said when people talk about the conditions that made it possible for a Trump, a Trump, a Ford, a whatever. Um, it is very encouraging to hear people talk this way. And I think Marshall would be encouraged too and say, well, we're finally getting somewhere because um, we're starting to understand that um, these figures uh, are somewhat the product of their environment, mm -hmm. right? Environmental conditions um, yeah. lend themselves to certain things happening, technologies to arise, people to arise. Um, and when we're talking about environment, we're talking about medium, as Marshall meant it. So I think we really understand um, fairly broadly what he meant by the medium is the message, even if we are confused by the language. Mm -hmm. uh, and that to me is very encouraging um, because I see it as a kind of environmental science. I wrote a piece about uh, the relation of uh, environmental science to media study. And I, I took a look at uh, Rachel Carson and Marshall McLuhan. Uh, it's really interesting that in 1962, Rachel Carson wrote The Silent Spring, which kind of blew the lid off um, dioxins and uh, pollution and brought that into the uh, public consciousness mm. and gave birth to the environmental movement of our natural environment and the idea that, you know, we're having a huge impact on it and we need to do something about it. Well, Marshall McLuhan wrote Understanding Media at the same time, published two years later in 64, and he was giving birth to an ecological thinking of another kind. The idea that we're creating these technologies and these technologies create an environment and have an effect on our people. And we better start to do something about it if we want to have any hand in our future. Exactly. Um, 
And so it's very interesting uh, whenever I hear people talking about environmental science, I sort of substitute environmental science for media study, and you can learn a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very encouraging to see that that's part of the public dialogue now is that kind of environmental thinking because um, it's a really uh, big step um, toward taking some measure of control over, you know, human development. Human ecology, social ecology, as Murray Bookchin talks about it, right? Media ecology. One of the, I wanted to touch on this because I feel like um, to play the devil's advocate, uh, I think anybody who thinks about this just for a couple minutes is going to be like, well, why didn't I ask, you know, are you trying to say that the content of Hitler's speeches was irrelevant? And that's actually addressed in the the Playboy interview here, so maybe you should have done the reading. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But uh, I wanted to read his response to that. So he says, by stressing that the medium is the message rather than the content, I'm not suggesting the content plays no role, merely that it plays a distinctly subordinate role. Even if Hitler had delivered botany lectures, some other demagogue, and by the way, that's something people say all the time. They're like, oh, if he could have just gone with his art degree, if his dad had told him that he could you know, go ahead and study art, then it would have been okay because that's the direction he was originally headed in. But but McLuhan's point is that that doesn't really matter. You know, If it wasn't Hitler, it would have been someone else. Some other de demagogue, he says, would have used the radio to retribalize the Germans and rekindle the dark atavistic side of the tribal nature that created European fascism in the 20s and 30s. Yeah. By placing all the stress on content and practically none on the medium, we lose all chance of perceiving and influencing the impact of new technologies on humanity, and thus we are always dumbfounded by, and unprepared for, the revolutionary environmental transformations induced by new media. Buffeted by environmental changes we, he, that we cannot comprehend, Humanity echoes the last plaintive cry of their tribal ancestor, Tarzan, <laughs> as he plummeted to earth. What is your show? Oh, this is my show. This is Virgil, everybody. Hi, Virgil. Say hi, Virgil. Hi. <laughs> so, so this means we're we're nearing the end of the interview. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, did you say yeah. you had a cup a question or two? Yeah, I wanted to read off from the chat. Um, <laughs> Dorian Sapien says, don't you sass us, Theory Plebe. Um, some people in the chat are saying hi to Virgil. Hi, oh, Virgil. Hi, Virgil. Virgil can't see those others, but just me and, and Flamingo here. Um, one of the questions that I, I think is very provocative for thought, uh, not that there is necessarily an answer, uh, is what Lauren was here says, I recommend, wait, okay, well, I'll still read that one. I recommend Thought Slime's video about how the web is communist. It's really good. Yes. So absolutely. I think that that's a fantastic video for this. Um, but who, who asked the question? I'm trying to find this it. Is Ezra. Oh, oh, Laura was here says, do you, do you guys think that there's an upper limit to how, to how quickly humans can adapt to changing technology? The whole chat's like, hi, Virgil. <laughs> and Ezra, this is Ezra here, my oldest. Ezra and Virgil, my boys. Um, 
No, you know, it's, it's amazing um, how quickly we adapt. Uh, and I think that's also a source of hope for me. Um, you know, neuroplasticity, this whole science of, of studying how the brain adapts and how the brain changes mm -hmm. um, can be used as, as a point of hope because um, it says that we can, we can also uh, adapt another way, right? right. So um, as much as uh, our brain rewires from constant smartphone use or, or whatever, um, and maybe it's a conceit or wishful thinking, but I like to think that um, we can undo a bit of the damage, if you want to see it as damage, by um, taking it away from the screen and going to the page. Um, because don't make the mistake that, you know, type on the screen is the same as writing on a page, because it's not. Um, and I do, uh, I try to do a lot of my work when I'm writing things. Uh, I try to at least sketch the outlines on paper. Um, because paper, writing on paper, using a pen or a pencil slows you down. Mm. Um, and that's a good thing for, you know, certain objects. It, uh, it lends itself to a certain kind of thought. You know, Truman Capote said of uh, Jack Kerouac's work, that's not writing, that's typing, you know, uh, and he had a point. Mm. So um, do I think there's an upper limit to how fast we can adapt? I mean, I don't know. Um, Elon Musk is uh, working very hard to do direct brain computer interfaces, um, which people are getting upset about, but we're already living the, the effect of that, if not the cause. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Paw what? Do I have Paw Patrol? <laughs> <laughs> do you know Paw Patrol? Do you know Paw Patrol? I don't. I do oh. not Paw Highly recommended. Okay. Okay. I'll look into it. Um, I want to do two things before we're closing out. Okay. Um, one is to introduce people to one of these decks of cards. I have a, I have a couple, right? And and uh, you would originally get to this to me as something that I could use as a fundraiser. And so I, I wanted to um, maybe you explain what this is. And then I was going to say that there's an auction on this to whoever makes the largest super chat before we close out. And at, this, at the point that we've said goodbye, I'm going to play a two-minute song. And then after that, that'll be the time that that's over. So. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, the, that deck of cards. So in the late 60s, 68, 69. Daddy, yeah. Um, like, 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 have a, like, are we going down and having freezes at the car wash? Yeah, we'll do that in a bit. Okay. Okay, so briefly. In the late 60s, um, Marshall taught for a year at Fordham University in 67, 68. Um, and he made, uh, there's a really fascinating story of Marshall in New York. That's a longer story, but um, mm. he made a connection there with some business people. And what developed out of that was a thing called the Dew Line Newsletter, D-E-W for Distant Early Warning Line. Um, and my dad, Eric, had recently started working with Marshall um, and dad edited the thing and basically worked as a, a go-between. So the premise behind the Dewline newsletter was that it was, um, you know, the hot off the brain of Marshall McLuhan thought. It was sort of a proto-blog, you know. Um, this could get to you faster than a book. Uh, it ended up, you know, not quite living up to the promise. And, you know, issues were later than promised. And 
you know, it took more like four to six weeks to get something out. But um, it's a really interesting, it's about an 18 month run. Um, if you go to my YouTube page for the McLuhan Institute, um, one of my many episodes for my inventory, I talk about this do line newsletter and look at some of them so you can get a better look. But um, one of the things uh, it was known and is regarded today for its cutting edge design. And one of the things they did to go along with it was uh, a little giveaway. Uh, so they designed this deck of cards and um, it's got uh, McLuhan aphorisms all over it. And it was billed in that issue of the do line newsletter as a contemporary I Ching. Uh, as a problem-solving device. And it's kind of a, a forerunner. I have a copy of uh, Brian Eno's um, deck, which came out a couple years later, Oblique Strategies, which is meant as a sort of creative blockbuster. So the idea behind the Dewline card deck was you pick a card at random with a problem in mind and see if it has anything to do with your situation, and maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Uh, and it's kind of a funky relic from the 60s in any case. Um, so, yeah, I sent you a, a package for your, um, what was the name of it? The farm? Yeah, Victory Farm Center for the Humanities. Yeah, so I really believed in what you wanted to do. Um, and, you know, I don't have spare cash, but I could send you a, a package. And I'm glad that uh, it'll be able to help you uh, some way. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, I just, it's just, it's just such a cool thing, you know? Um, and I know for a fact that we have some people who are you know, fans of your grandfather and your father's work, which we haven't talked about your father and hopefully we can more later, but for now, for now, we're going to close out. Uh, I'm going to after we say goodbye. I'm going to read off the last paragraph from the interview and then I'll go to music. Minutes, so cool thank you so much for joining us this has been wonderful it's I, I i'm so excited that you were here with us early on for this tradition because i think that McLuhan's insights are something that will help inform everything that i'm doing with this channel so thank you cool good luck thanks dave take care